Lord, you encourage our hearts. Lord, as Peter said, you know, where could we go to find the words of life? But to this book, we thank you, Lord, that your words are peace. Your words are joy. Your words are sustenance and strength for our lives. And I pray tonight, Lord, that we'll leave refreshed and fed and energized and ready to tackle the challenges that we face every day. We love you, Lord. We ask for your blessing on our Bible study tonight, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter was a pastor. The word pastor means shepherd. And Peter certainly had a shepherd's heart for God's flock. Remember when he was recommissioned by Jesus there at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus told him, feed my lambs. Then later he said, if you love me, tend my sheep. And if you love me, feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, be a shepherd. And to that calling, Peter remained true his whole life long. That's what he's doing here in these two letters, first and second Peter. As shepherds do, he is feeding the flock and he is warning the flock. First Peter deals primarily with persecution, whereas second Peter deals with false teachers. Guys, attacks will come from both the outside and inside the church. And Peter doesn't want us to deny the Lord as he did. He wants us to build a strong faith, to add to our faith, virtue, and other characteristics that will fortify it and be a faithful witness for him, even in the face of danger. Peter addresses his letter in verse 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you know that faith alone is worthless. Faith is only as good as its object. People of all religions believe in their so-called gods, but believing a lie doesn't make it so. Faith proves precious because of the right standing with God that's achieved for us through Jesus Christ. We do have a precious faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice here, Jesus is referred to as both God and Savior. Several years ago, I had a Muslim lady approach me after a morning service. And she remarked to me, she said, I really enjoyed what you had to say about God. But I got confused when you mentioned Jesus because you talked about Jesus as if he were God. I said, you're very perceptive. Because that's exactly what I intended to do. For Jesus is God. We call him God incarnate or God in the flesh. The deity of Christ is what sets him apart from all other religious leaders. Jesus was not simply some rabbi or some prophet or teacher. It's not enough to even call him the greatest man who ever lived. He was much more than that. As Peter says here, Jesus is God and Savior. And verse 3 tells us that Jesus' divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. In other words, all that's satisfying in life, all that enables a God-pleasing conduct is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the key that unlocks God's presence and God's power in our lives. If life were a treasure map, Jesus would be the X that marks the spot. It reminds me of Jeff Ferrara. 
He was reconciling his checkbook one night when he called the First National Bank of Chicago to check his balance. The electronic voice on the other end of the line said, You have a balance of $924,844,204.32. Jeff Art was stunned. But he was one of 826 customers who, due to a computer error that week, became an instant millionaire. Of course, none of the 826 people were allowed to keep the money. Yet, in Christ, you and I have become instant billionaires. And it's no error. We can keep the blessings. We can draw on those blessings through faith. Jesus credits our account with his righteousness. We are now entitled to all that he has earned. And verse 4 says of Jesus, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Have you noticed that the word precious is a favorite word of Peter's? Especially when it comes to the blessings of God. He's already talked about our precious faith. Now he mentions precious promises. Later he'll talk about the precious blood of Jesus. And still later, the precious cornerstone. You see, the blessings of God were precious to Peter. They were Peter's treasure. They were his love and desire and passion. And he says that through these precious promises that we've been given, we've become partakers of the divine nature. When you come to Jesus, God downloads his nature onto your hard drive. Isn't it wonderful? His spirit writes his law upon your heart. He implants within you His very nature. God installs onto your spiritual hard drive righteousness 7.7 and love XP. This enables us, Peter says, to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. And you know the evils and the wickedness that we see, the violence in our society are the direct result of lust. The craving for what we don't have fuels our greed. It drives us to nibble at sin. We escape the clutches of lustful living when we're filled with God's joy and peace and realize that His nature has been planted in us. We've become partakers of the divine nature. And verse 5 tells us, as a result, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue. All God's blessings are received by faith. But understand, faith needs to be fed. Faith needs to be strengthened and fortified in order to grow strong. And that's why we need to add to our faith those qualities that will help us focus and keep us pure and enable us to grow. Peter says, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. Don't misunderstand. Faith in Christ is all that we need to be right with God. Faith is enough. But if you want a strong faith, If you want a faith that will last and not falter, then you need to strengthen your faith by adding to it virtue 
and all of these other characteristics. You know, when you grow tomato plants, you use wire mesh to sort of guide the growth of the vine as it kind of climbs up that wire. And these seven virtues, these spiritual accessories, I call them, this is what guides and stabilizes our faith as it grows. Virtue and knowledge and self-control and the like keep our faith pure. It keeps us on target. And Peter says in verse 9, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If you don't add to your faith all of these characteristics, it means you're blind. It means you've forgotten what you've been saved from. You don't want to go back that direction. You want to strengthen your faith and fortify your faith and keep growing in Christ. You know, I heard a great definition for the world nostalgia. It's recalling the pleasures of sitting in front of the fire without remembering who had to cut the wood. Isn't that a great definition? You know, we can get so used to God's blessings that we forget what life was like without them. That's not good. There are two truths I always try to keep in my mind. First, who I am in Christ. That gives me hope. But also, I need to remember who I am without Him. The best motivation to build a strong faith is the recognition recognition that a weakened faith might lead us to fall. That's what we need to avoid at all costs. Which leads to verse 10. Therefore, brethren... Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Now, at first glance, this phrase in verse 10, to make your calling and election sure, sounds sort of strange. To be called implies that you did nothing to initiate the call. The idea of God's election implies not that you chose, but that you were chosen. So how do you make something, how do you make sure of something that you had nothing to do with in the first place? Good question. Here's another example of the Bible's mysterious blending of both free will and predestination. Yes, God chose you, but equally true, you had to choose God. And you chose God by faith. Therefore, to make your salvation sure and certain, you need to continue in that growing faith. And how do you do that? Well, you add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control. And through that, you build a faith that doesn't falter. In chapter 1, verse 12, we have a pastor's job defined for us. Peter says, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. This is the pastor's job. To keep us in constant reminder of the things that are important. You know, living in a fallen world, eternal truth can grow fuzzy at times. It can at least seem to be fuzzy at times. We can lose focus. We can get uncertain about spiritual realities and truths. And that's why when we come to church, we need the pastor to sort of twist the lens of Scripture and bring those spiritual realities back into focus and remove that fuzziness and make things clear to us again. 
This is the job of the pastor to remind you always of these things. In verse 13, Peter refers to his physical body as a tent in contrast to a house. You know, a tent is a temporal dwelling. These old bodies that we're inhabiting, we're pop-ups. You know that. We're just tents. They pop up for a time and in the end they're folded up and then they're put away. One vacation we went to the late Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Monticello. And we learned there that the slaves that lived on his plantation, they worked hard. In fact, at one point in the tour, the guide made the statement, the men worked in the fields until they were 40 years old. And after that, they could no longer do anything. And my kids started laughing. They knew that their dad had already hit 40 years old. And thus, according to the tour guide, he could no longer do anything. But, you know, sometimes I feel that way. I'm a pop-up. I'm here for a short time. This is a temporary habitation that I'm dwelling in. I'm a pop-up that's going to be folded up real soon. We're all here today and gone tomorrow. I hope you realize that. And so... While Peter inhabits his tent, he feels that it's his duty to remind the church of spiritual truth. He says in verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, as long as I've got a breath to breathe, to stir you up, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Guys, we all are in this body, but it's just a tent. And one day, our time here will be over. That's why, while we're in this tent, let's do those things that God has called us to do and that has laid on our heart to do. Rosalind Arison, she has written a piece. It's entitled, Oh, Mr. Tent Maker. Listen to a portion. It was nice living in this tent when it was strong and secure and the sun was shining and the air was warm. But Mr. Tent Maker, it's scary now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak and shift with the wind. A couple of the stakes have wiggled loose from the sand. And worst of all, the canvas has a rip. It no longer protects me from beating rain or stinging flies. It's scary in here, Mr. Tent Maker. Why did you give me such a flimsy tent? Well, Mr. Tent Maker replies, Oh, little tent dweller, as the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you both. I made a tent for myself once. It too was vulnerable, and vicious attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still in it. But you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. In fact, the whole experience now prepares me to live in your tent with you if you invite me. You will learn as we dwell together that real security comes from my being in your tent with you. When the storms come, you can huddle in my arms and I'll hold you. Someday, little tent dweller, your tent will collapse, for I've only designed it for temporary use. When it does, you and I will leave together. I promise not to leave before you do. We'll move to our permanent home and be together forever. Isn't that neat? In verse 15, Peter says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always 
have a reminder of these things after my decease. And this is exactly what he did. He put his recollections down on paper. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel is actually the remembrances of Peter. Mark was Peter's disciple and probably his primary source of information. And so not only was Peter responsible for these two letters, but he was also probably responsible for the content of Mark's gospel as well. Peter reminds his readers of the reliability of his message in verse 16. He says, in contrast to cunningly devised fables, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' glory and majesty. What he wrote about, he saw with his own eyes. You remember on top of Mount Hermon, Peter was one of the three disciples who saw firsthand the glory of God radiating from the Son of God. It was an experience that he never forgot. Jesus transfigured in all of his glory. And he writes about it in verse 17. He says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. There was no mistaking it. Not just one person heard it, but notice we heard it. Three people heard it. James, Peter, and John. All of them were on the mountaintop. And they all heard the audible voice of God identify Jesus of Nazareth as his beloved son. Guys, there are two great apologetical proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ. First are the eyewitness accounts, Peter's being one of them. Never forget the gospel writers all suffered for the truths that they recorded. If they had gotten rich off the story, then we might have been tempted to accuse them of lying deliberately. But it's hard to imagine men martyred in order to support a deception. Rather than being rich off the story they told, they were persecuted and eventually killed. And of course, the second great proof for the claims of Jesus were the fulfilled prophecies. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled, detailing where and when and how and why Messiah would come. The Old Testament contains predictions that were amazingly fulfilled to the nth degree in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. How do we know that that this doctrine is sure? How do we know that the message is reliable? It's through the eyewitness accounts that have been passed down to us and through the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus Christ. Peter's point of verse 19, we also have the prophetic word made more sure. And notice the most important understanding that Peter states about prophecy. In verse 20, he says, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. I often hear people say, well, the Bible, you know, it has a different meaning for everyone. You interpret the Bible your way and I'll interpret the Bible my way. But not so. The scriptures are of no private interpretation. The Bible means what God intended for it to mean. It has one interpretation and that's God's interpretation. And that one interpretation applies to us all. And it's up to us to seek the Holy Spirit for that interpretation. But it's there. It's there. You might disagree with what it means. I might say it means this. You might say it means that. But one of us is right or one of us is wrong or maybe both of us are wrong. But, But there is a right interpretation. 
The Bible is of no private interpretation. It's of the interpretation that God intends for it to it to have. In other words, the Bible is one size fits all. And one more word about prophecy. Verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here is the genius of the Bible. Human authors penned the message so that human readers could understand. And so they used local idioms. They used the common vernacular. But those authors wrote only as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that the end result is a book that relates to the human mind, but at the same time reveals the mind of God. What a miracle. What a genius of creation. Now, the prophets who penned scripture were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there are other prophets, false prophets, who come into the church even today and they are moved by other factors. Pride and lust and greed, and ego, and Satan. False teachers will bring into the church destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the truth about Jesus Christ. You know, the Mormons are a good example. Here's a group that's against abortion. They support what we would think would be biblical morality. They appear to be family-oriented. Most Mormons are... Latter-day Saints are respectable folks. They make nice neighbors, in fact. There's only one problem. They deny the uniqueness of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. They're right and respectable on moral issues, but they're dead wrong on the central issue of the deity of Jesus. And as a result, they're taking millions of folks to hell. Peter refers to these false teachers in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And then he adds in verse two, many will follow their destructive ways. It's sad to see how the cults have grown in recent years. Over the last 30 years, the Jehovah's Witnesses have grown from 100,000 to 2 million. The Mormons or the Latter-day Saints have grown from 1 million in 1957 to 10 million in 1997. But it fulfills Peter's words, many will follow. Peter explains the motive and method of these false teachers in verse 3. He says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Men longing for a following, energized by ego, greedy for gain, they twist the truth to attract a crowd. Peter says their destruction does not slumber. And in the next several verses, Peter gives three examples of how God has judged the wicked in the past and how he will judge people again. He brings up three examples. The angels in Noah's day, the sin of Sodom and the greed of Balaam. In verses four and five. He reminds us of the sin that necessitated the worldwide flood and God's need to literally wipe out the human race. God, remember, destroyed the earth with water and he started over with eight people, with Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. I personally believe that the destruction of Noah's flood was necessitated by an angelic apostasy. Jude chapter 6 tells us that the angels in Noah's day did not keep their proper domain. 
Some Bible teachers, myself included, believe that fallen angels took bodily forms in those days and impregnated human women. The result was a perverted race of giants. Satan was threatening to contaminate the human gene pool and to spoil God's plan for humanity. And as a consequence of that, God wiped out the population and he started over with Noah and his family. He then took those demons involved and he chained them into the darkest part of hell. The Greek word translated hell here in verse 4 of chapter 2 is the word Tartarus. And this is the only place in the New Testament where the word is used. Apparently, God created a special holding cell for these vile and vicious and and rebellious demons. Another example of God's judgment takes place later in Genesis. Verse 6 here says, God, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Of course, Sodom was notorious for its sexual perversions, its rampant homosexuality. And certainly this was part of the reason that God torched the city. But Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, gives us a fuller picture of Sodom. Ezekiel says this, Look, this was the iniquity of Sodom. And and notice what Ezekiel points out. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food. An abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. In other words, it wasn't just for sexual sin that God condemned Sodom. She was also proud and selfish and apathetic and uncharitable. God judged Sodom, but he delivered Lot, who, according to verse 7, was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, By seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot was righteous by faith. He knew God. And he tried to follow in God's ways. But his close associations with the world made Lot a miserable man. You see, here is the sad plight of the Christian who refuses to separate himself from the influences and attitudes of the world. He ends up oppressed. He ends up miserable and tormented. Lot, you see, was a backslidden believer. He had enough of the Lord not to be happy in the world, but he had enough of the world not to be happy in the Lord. What a sad plight. Lot, you see, was the consummate fence straddler. Lot was lukewarm. Guys, let's be on fire for Jesus, not lukewarm like Lot. Sodom proved that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, Peter says. You don't snub biblical commands for long and not eventually feel the fury of God's wrath. And an interesting point is made about the people of Sodom in verse 10. Peter says they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. In other words, the men of Sodom had no respect for authority of any kind, let alone God's authority. In contrast, the angels, who are far more powerful than any puny human being, the angels, it seems, have a deep respect for the authority that God has established. 
Angels would never buck a God-sanctioned authority. The angels are more powerful than man, but they show more restraint. Puny man, he bucks at God's authority, whereas the angels would never cast a reviling accusation against an authority of God. And if mighty, colossal angels choose to submit to God-ordained authority, how much more a teenager should submit to his parents? Or how much more an employee should follow and obey his boss? It gets real personal here, doesn't it? Again, he describes the judgment of Sodom in chapter 2, verse 12. Like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. In other words, the Sodomites had no shame. You know, it's one thing to sin in seclusion under the cover of darkness. It's another thing to sin openly and publicly with no squint of conscience. This was the case in Sodom. It was gay pride day all the time. In verse 14, Peter refers to the false teachers who had infiltrated the church as spots and blemishes. He also calls them having eyes full of adultery. And that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And then he says of them, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. You see, these false teachers were skilled manipulators. They knew how to play on your emotion. They knew how to use circular reasoning and employ terms that they had redefined. They take verses out of context in order to fit their argument. They were shrewd, but Peter calls them accursed children. And the third example of their judgment is the story of Balaam. Verse 15 says, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You remember the story. God warned Balaam not to go and curse the Israelites. But you see, the king of Moab, he kept sweetening the pot. He kept raising his wages. And it was greed that finally pushed Balaam to disobey God. Balaam was rebuked by God in a most unusual way. We're told a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. (laughs) And of course, you guys, you think, well, that's not really unusual here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. God uses a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice every Sunday. Balaam's story, though, does remind me of the crooked businessman who went to his accountant and he offered him $100,000 if he would just sort of doctor the books in order to cover up his embezzlement. Well, the accountant agreed. But then the businessman turned back to the accountant and he said, hey, why don't you just do it for a penny? And the accountant, he, he was sort of stiffened up. He was taken back. He says, of course I wouldn't do that. What do you think I am, a thief? And the embezzler answered, I've already established that. All that's undecided is your price. You know, it's been said, every man has his price. I hope that's not true. The false teacher sells out the truth for material gain, just like Balaam. Whereas hopefully the true man of God will remain faithful no matter what. 
In verse 17 of chapter 2, Peter calls the false teachers wells without water. I like that idiom. A well without water. It's been said, empty barrels make the most noise. Spiritual charlatans specialize in making empty promises. Verse 18 says, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. And they allure through the lusts of the flesh. You know, sadly, there is always a waiting audience for a teacher who will provide religious justification for the lusts of the flesh. Hey, show them how to please God and satisfy the flesh simultaneously and they'll buy it. People like to be spiritual. You'll find no problem getting people to want to be spiritual just as long as they don't have to be more moral. But you see, the two go hand in hand. Verse 19 says of the false teacher, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. If you could look behind the facade of the false teacher, if you could see behind the guru and the oriental master who seems to have it all together, who seems to have mastered the secrets of life, Peter says you'll find a burned out, bound up, morally bankrupt sinner. They promise liberty while themselves are slaves of corruption. Verse 20 is a portrait of the saddest person on earth. He is the man, he or she is the woman who has tasted the joys of Jesus Christ, yet has walked away. And for now on, they'll never enjoy sin because they have known the joys of Jesus and they know how it pales in comparison with the blessings in Christ. We're told, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. And he quotes Proverbs 26 verse 11. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. It's like a prisoner who's been set free, and yet he's lazy and irresponsible and apathetic, and so he returns to the prison because it's easier. At least there he's got a bed and three square meals. Jesus sets us free from sin. But some people are just too lazy to add to their faith. Apathy then sets in, and they refuse to continue in Christ They're so entrenched in the ways of the world that they don't sustain that change that he's wrought in their hearts. And as a dog or a pig, it's possible for a person to return to the slop. It's sad. They'd rather rather eat Spam than steak. They'd rather drive a Pinto than a Porsche. It's possible, but it's insane. In chapter 3, Peter reminds his readers in verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? There are skeptics today who make fun of us as Christians. They call us alarmists. They treat our warnings of the Lord's return as the boy who cried wolf. 
They say in a sarcastic tone, Hey, you Christians are always talking about the end of the world. You're always talking about the final judgment. Well, we're waiting. Why doesn't God come and show himself? Peter tells us in chapter 3 that the scoffer has forgotten three truths. First, that God has judged the world before. Second, that if God judged the world before, he will judge the world again. And third, don't be deceived by God's delay. For with God, time is relative. Peter notes the philosophy of the scoffers in verse 4. He says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Here's the theory that today goes by the name uniformitarianism. It was first proposed by Charles Lyell, an English geologist who lived in the 1800s. And Lyell's doctrine is the foundation of Darwin's evolution. And sadly, the dominant view of most modern scientists today, just as Peter predicted for the last days. Simply put, uniformitarianism is the belief that the earth has been shaped throughout its history by the same natural laws and processes that are at work today. A uniformitarian would stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, look down at that slender little blue thread weaving its way through the canyon, that thing called the Colorado River, five miles below, and they would claim that that tiny river cut out that giant canyon. In other words, given enough time, anything is possible. The uniformitarian will say that the Grand Canyon formed the same way that the gullies in your backyard formed, by simple erosion. I'm sorry, but I'm not that gullyable. <laughs> Peter continues in verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished. How? Being flooded with water. What most scientists omit from their thinking is that God flooded the earth with water. A catastrophic global flood is a far better explanation for the earth's geology the natural process is occurring over millions of years. And the flood is documented both in the historical annals of man and it's also documented in the geology of the earth. God flooded the earth in the days of Noah. Have you heard the top ten statements Noah made on the ark? Number ten, strange we haven't seen another boat for weeks. Number nine, if only I'd brought along more rhino litter. Number eight, I never want to sleep in a waterbed again. Number seven, fish for supper again. Number six, does anyone have more drama me? Number five, what? You don't have film to photograph the rainbow? Number four, honey, please stop saying into each life, a little rain must fall. Number three, how can I fish with just two worms? Number two, God, are you sure I don't need to keep the termites in a tin can? And number one, Noah was seen years after exiting the ark, slapping the back of his neck and mumbling, 
Man, I should have killed those lousy mosquitoes while I had a chance. Seriously, the earth's geological strata are full of testimony of a worldwide flood. There's evidence that all of the earth's mountaintops were at one time underwater. Sedimentary rock and marine fossils are found near the peaks of almost all of the world's mountaintops. Even volcanoes show evidence that they were formed underwater. And the mere existence of a fossil flies in the face of uniformitarian assumptions. Think about it. Fossils don't form over time. A bird falls to the ground. And either it blows away or scavengers come and pick it apart. A fossil forms when intense pressure follows immediate compaction, the type of conditions that are created by a flood. Understand the biblical flood isn't ignored by the evolutionist because it lacks scientific credence. Peter says it is willfully or deliberately forgotten. You see, arrogant men can't admit to a flood, for if they do, they will validate God's judgment. They will admit that there is an authority to whom they will have to answer. Instead, they've chosen to deny any evidence for, of God and pretend to be their own authority. Verse 7 says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. After the flood, God put a rainbow in the sky as a promise that he would never judge the earth again with water. But one day he will judge this earth with fire. If you admit that God judged the earth, then you have to concede that he can do it again. And he will one day with fire. And here's another point to consider when it comes to God's delay in judging the world. You see, with God, time is relative. 2,000 years might seem like a long time to you and me, but it's timeless in the eyes of God. God is a timeless God, and 2,000 years to Him is mere seconds. Second Peter 3, verse 8 tells us, With the Lord one day is as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years as one day. Peter assures us in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God is no slacker. God is not in the habit of putting off his obligations. And God has delayed his judgment today for one reason. That's because he loves people. That's because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he is waiting for people to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But the day of judgment will come. God will judge this wicked world. We're told in verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Apparently, this present world is highly flammable. And when God gives the order, it's all going to go up like a bale of pine straw in a forest fire. And since that's true, Peter asks the question in verse 11. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? In other words, in light of God's judgment, in the light of the fact that everything around us is one day going to burn. What kind of people should we be? We need to be holy people. 
We need to live godly lives. We need to build our lives around the things that can't burn, that aren't consumed by fire. Things that come through the fire, tried and precious as gold. And verse 12 tells us, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, we often think of looking for Jesus, living in an expectancy of the Lord's return. But notice this phrase, and hastening the coming of the day of God. How do we hasten or speed up the Lord's coming? Did you know that you and I can speed up the time of the rapture? Well, Romans 11 verse 25 tells us that the events of the end times won't begin until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The implication is, is that there is a set number that will be saved. And when that number is reached, then the father turns to the son and he says, go get them. That means that every person we lead to the Lord is one more person closer. It adds one more to that number. The more we share our faith, the more we speed up the Lord's return. And that's our desire. The more we think of the glories and the wonders of the new heavens and new earth, as Peter says, mentioned in verse 13, the more we want to say, Lord, come quickly. Oh, how we long to see Jesus. Oh, how we would love to speed up the Lord's return. Imagine hearing the trumpet blast and the voice of the archangel and suddenly be snatched away in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Imagine it opening your eyes and finding yourself standing in the presence of our Lord Jesus. What a hope. What a comfort. What a day to live for and prepare for. And yet I need to remember that if Jesus had come last January, some of you guys wouldn't be going with us. As Peter put it in verse 15, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And I suppose I can wait a few more days if it means a few more souls will be saved. And notice Peter's mention of Paul's letters in verses 15 and 16. He says that Paul concurs with what he said But notice what else he says about Paul's writings. Chapter 3, verse 16. In which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? That Peter says that about Paul. He says that Paul can get rather complicated. Hard to understand. If you thought that, you're in good company. Peter thought so too. But notice also how Peter equates Paul's writings to Scripture. I think this is important. He says in verse 16, As they do also the rest of the Scriptures. The idea being there that Peter is putting Paul's writings in the canon of sacred Scripture. Peter sums it all up. In verses 17 and 18, beware and be growing. That's the whole message. Beware of false teachers and be growing in your faith. Let's develop both a good offense and a good defense. Let's grow in grace and let's beware of false doctrine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for...
The Apostle Peter in his letters to us. Good truths, good warnings to us. Lord, help us to take heed the things we've heard tonight. Lord, we thank you that faith is enough. That faith is all we need to be right with you. And to stay right with you. But Lord, help us to realize that if faith is going to last, we have to strengthen it. We have to fortify it. We need to add to it virtue and self-control and knowledge and brotherly kindness and love for one another. Help us, Lord, to be diligent, to build up our faith. And help us, Lord, to beware. There are false teachers out there. And one day they will be judged. In the meantime, Lord, help us be smart, be wise. And not allow ourselves to be sucked into their trap. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and the Holy Spirit who teaches us. Lord, bless us and guide us and continue to speak to us in the days ahead. Lord, we especially want to thank you for our conference this week. We thank you for the opportunity to host it. And we thank you for the opportunity to attend it and to glean so much this coming week. Lord, I pray you'll bless each of the teachers that are coming. Give them safe trips. Be with Pastor Chuck. Watch over him. Lord, I also pray for the people that are coming from faraway places. I pray that you'll give them traveling mercies and get them here safely. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would enjoy this week. Take advantage of it. And Lord, I pray that you'll just work in our hearts in a very special way. And Lord, when it's all said and done, I pray that you will have really stoked a fire here at Calvary Chapel. That will burn brightly. And that it will catch fire to this whole community around us. We love you, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.